Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quickett. The agriculture industry has come under a great deal of criticism in recent years regarding its environmental footprint. It's estimated that 14.5% of all human-derived emissions come from animal farming. And as the human population continues to grow, feeding everyone a nutritious and balanced diet without exceeding what our plant can sustainably produce has become even more challenging. My guest today is helping to lead our response to that challenge, working across the industry to make animal farming more sustainable through scientific innovation. Christy Chavez is the Vice President at DSM Animal Nutrition and Health, a purpose-led, performance-driven company that specializes in making sustainable animal feed, which reduces emissions, limits food loss and waste, and helps us use less natural resources, amongst many other things that we'll talk about. Parent company Royal DSM also produces sustainable human food and is committed to making the food chain not only greener, but far more equitable through their work with organizations such as Africa Improved Foods and the UN World Food Program. Christy, welcome to Brand on Purpose. It's great to be here, Aaron. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about some of the great work that we're doing at DSM. Well, thanks for joining all the way from Switzerland, the beauty of Squadcast and remote and virtual recording, but we can still see each other. So uh, I appreciate your time today. So you have an interesting background. You grew up on a farm. I actually don't say that that often to many guests, and I don't even know that many people have actually grown up on real working farms. And at the same time, you also have an educational background in animal science and molecular biology. How did all these things intersect and how have the experiences that you had growing up influenced what you decided to pursue as a passion for work and your career at DSM? First of all, I grew up on a farm that was classically diverse, meaning that we had income from row crops. So we we planted corn and soybeans. We also had some cow-calves and we had some pigs. So at this time, growing up in the 80s, it was very traditional farm, but that classically diverse at the time was not the most profitable. And in fact, something that was probably quite instrumental in my careers was that through some of the farm policy changes that happened at that time, my parents had to get jobs off the farm. So the farm was no longer able to support us because it was a time where scale was really driving efficiency and economy. And that became such an important point for success and sustainability from a profit perspective. And we we didn't adapt. And so we had to make some other choices. And so I wanted so very much to be working in agriculture. And I realized that coming back to the farm wasn't going to give me the lifestyle that I was looking for. I didn't realize that I was going to be able to work on the farm. So that ever wasn't really an option. So I decided to pursue animal science. And then I was always interested in technology because it always felt like there was more and more to learn. This continuous learning and continuous evolution in how to be better at the things that we were doing. And so I took an interest in technology and the research side of it, how you could incorporate smarter practices or products or management techniques. I ended up with an opportunity to go to work for a large agriculture company in animal research and really enjoyed that get to know yourself a bit. And, and then I realized that although I like the research side of it, I also was super excited and motivated to be working more closely with those customers that were still on the farm and still in the animal production on a day-to-day basis. And so then I shifted over into the business side, you know, but there's things that you go through as a farm kid that really imprint you for the rest of your life. There's nothing like uh, putting up square hay bales in the middle of the summer when it's 99 degrees outside and hot and miserable 
miserable to really motivate you to go to college and figure out how to have a successful career in agriculture that didn't require hay bales in the summer. I also think it's interesting because you, growing up the way you did, I believe your longest stint so far in your career has been with Monsanto. That's correct. I spent 23 years there. Did you have any hesitation or were your parents like, what are you doing? Companies like this actually created efficiencies that were able to operate at scale to put us out of business and made us find jobs. I'm just kind of curious because there's a little bit of a dissonance there. And I know that that's not necessarily the case today, but what was that conversation like? Yeah. So you have to think about the time frame. When I joined Monsanto, it was a very different company. And it's a company that changed a lot over the years. In fact, when I joined, agriculture would have been the smallest sliver on the pie chart relative to where their businesses were. And it was through a number of acquisitions and divestitures and later an IPO. Everything changed except the name. It was such a hard time on the farm for us. It wasn't that profitable. So, you know, the conversation was really around everything that we were learning. And you quickly realize what you don't know. There's still more science, more management techniques, more, more, more. And this evolution and this journey of continuous improvement, for me, what I realize is how early I was in that process. And not just me, but I think the industry in general. And we still have so much more that we could learn and how we can be smarter. And now thinking about not only the production, but the environmental aspects and now how we can take animal agriculture as a tool in climate change and ensuring that we can produce sustainable protein and to meet the demands of the growing population. And it's a huge sign that larger kind of multinational corporates are hiring people with scientific backgrounds like yourself to help bring that to the market. How does DSM do that? What is your day-to-day like? What is it that you're doing from a science standpoint to help improve sustainable agriculture and also create product to help feed our animals, then reduce our footprint? One of the things I might say is DSM is probably one of the largest companies that's least known. Maybe a few comments about about DSM. DSM is actually a fairly old company that's gone through several transformations itself, founded in 1902 and actually was in a completely different industry with respect to coal and then has transformed itself a number of times now has this nutrition focus. And I was exploring the opportunity to come to DSM. One thing that really struck me was here's a company that firmly believes that we can be performance-driven but purpose-led. I was really keen on the message, but then I wanted to dig in and understand. And then in enjoining I'm so excited about the science that it becomes foundational for everything we do, because especially a company our size, we have to be credible. We have to have integrity in our science. And it's a non-starter. I mean, it's in, from the standpoint of there, there is no other option. So, you know, we, when you have clarity of your values, decisions become really easy. And so there, there's clear values around science and the credibility of science, and then what we need to do to improve the sustainability, both from the things that we're doing internally, but as well as tools and products that we can put on the marketplace for our customers. And so having the opportunity to build a portfolio of products that we can sell that will enable more sustainable protein production is certainly the first mandate that we have within the specialty business. But we also had the liberty to take that even further. Uh, and this will be pivotal for us, not only us as DSM, but us in the animal agriculture industry, 
in sustainability is being able to put metrics in place to measure sustainable farm prints. So take, if you had a, have a farm, I know you live in New York, so um, your sustainability farming print might be pretty small. Um, but, <laughs> but if you're, uh, for an individual, you want to have an impact on your own farm print, your own sustainability footprint, if you will. And by being able to measure that, you have a target. You know where you stand today. You can incorporate practices, management techniques, different changes in your operations, and you could actually measure the impact of those products or management techniques or a combination of those. Just for clarity's sake, for our listeners, when we talk about DSM as it relates to the space and you know where you are right now, we're not necessarily talking about retail presence, or are we? Or is this a company that's more behind the scenes that you don't see is doing a lot of that great work from an ingredient standpoint and from a manufacturing standpoint that then through the supply chain makes that kind of sustainable impact that we're talking about? Can you just walk me through that just through the eyes of layman consumer? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Aaron. So we manufacture vitamins and feed additives. And so we would be selling B2B, so uh, to other businesses, and we also have a human business as well. So selling to businesses that would be incorporating vitamins into their products. On the animal side, we would sell to other feed manufacturers. We would also sell directly to some of the large integrators, some of the large companies like a, a Tyson, for example, that have have their own uh, production. And so we have direct to farmer relationships as well as direct to other businesses. So who does DSM in this regard compete against? Really interesting business model that we have. So we have customers that would also be competitors. We may sell vitamins, but then when it gets to formulated feed products that a farmer might be choosing, we could be positioned against some of the other customers that, that we have some brands in the, in the space. Traditionally, our competitors at that farmer level would be other premix manufacturers. And so those manufacturers of, of premixes where you get your vitamins and your mineral and supplements together. Besides the fact that DSM has changed significantly since its founding, it was a coal mining company. I mean, a lot of companies went through this transformation. I think of Orbia, formerly Mexichem, Monsanto, like you said, DSM. And in fact, I think the M stood for mining. How much of the decisioning is, I'm going to do business with this company because they are purpose-led, purpose-driven and they are connecting their metrics, their KPIs to the UN sustainability goals versus, oh, by the way, this company also creates great product. And the two are obviously combined. There's an intersectionality, but from a marketing and messaging standpoint, how important is that purpose-led message, especially in the B2B world? Because oftentimes we talk a lot on the show about B2C. Every so often we have the pleasure of having folks on that also operate behind the scenes in the B2B world as well. And we don't usually get to have like a sneak peek into understanding what those types of conversations are like from a sales and marketing standpoint. It's interesting times at the moment because sustainability is everywhere in conversations. And everyone seems to recognize, and this is everyone from all the way down to from a farm level to other companies, and no matter where you are along the value chain, sustainability is talked about. The challenge is, it's not always clear what to do about it or how to engage. And we're very early in on the journey of where we need to be. And so 
by being pretty public with what we're doing from a sustainability initiative perspective, which we launched last year, an initiative called We Make It Possible. And under We Make It Possible started the conversation around how we've restructured our portfolio, for example, and a lot of our strategy and initiatives around six different platforms are super transparent with the areas where we're focused on and trying to drive a conversation within the industry because there's a lot of noise and we see it as an opportunity for multiple places in the value chain to start working together. And most importantly, come together around metrics. If you have a destination in mind, it's a lot easier to know where you're starting at to figure out how to get there. And that's what we've seen and what some of the frustration and criticisms in sustainability, especially in agriculture in the past, is there's not good metrics. There's different metrics, different ways or narrow aspects to to look at, whether it's emissions or greenhouse gas impact. So what we're trying to do is drive some consistency in the conversation, number one. So anchor in on the, the right metrics and a common set of metrics that we use, and then work with others in the chain to have an ability to measure that. And, and this is a um, modeling that we've been working on with a third party and, and we're working together. And so what we found to come back to your question is how does that work from a B2B space? Everyone's looking for a way to start making that impact. And this, by being very public with our We Make a Possible campaign, we've opened the door to a lot of those conversations with both our competitors and others within the value chain on how we can start measuring the impact and how we can start working together. Because at the end of the day, we're one piece of the value chain. There's others along the way that we don't touch today. We work with those others down the chain. We can have more of an end-to-end view. So you joined DSM about a month before the pandemic, right? (laughs) Yes. My entire DSM experience has been in a COVID world, essentially. So you've met no one? technically in person or maybe social distance? Yes, I've met my boss and others in social distancing, but many of our colleagues around the world and the regions have only been virtual. And well, one of the reasons why I ask is it can't be easy to start a new job in the middle of a pandemic or at the start of a pandemic and then pick up and move from the States to Switzerland and acclimate to a new way of living, a new cultural lifestyle. You know, you've relocated your family I'm also curious, attitudinally, the differences when we talk about sustainability and purpose between conversations that you're having in Europe amongst your colleagues there, but also just living in a community that you're in versus coming from, I think we were in the Midwest, right? In the States prior. Yes. Two very different worlds. (laughs) I'd like you to discuss the differences, but also where the similarities are, especially through the lens of sustainability and purpose and commitment to community and doing well by doing good. I tell you what's interesting here, and by the way, I have a farm back in Missouri as well. So I've got that perspective as well. But I can walk my dog in the morning and I will walk past a beef farm, a dairy farm. Often the sheep are out, you know, and I will see them managing some hay, some grass area or some alfalfa. And I really appreciate the fact that within this village, and I'm you know super close to the city, I'm exposed to so much agriculture. I see that here within Europe, where there is more connection to agriculture. The challenge that we have in the States is that generations are so far removed from the farm. 
And the understanding is very limited. And a lot of people get their education or insights on education through social media. So it's a a fairly limited and can be skewed perspective. When you live in in Europe in, in a village here, I get that constant exposure to agriculture. And so I think there's a tighter connection and sustainability is more of a given in the conversation. So it's not ever an optional part of the conversation. And so I see much more acceptance and the, the connection and the visibility that most consumers have to agriculture is just greater than what I would have experienced in the States, you know, when the States, we've got very regional areas where a lot of the production occurs. I was living in St. Louis. And so other than my own personal zoo of, of cats and dogs, you didn't have a lot of that animal agriculture exposure, and especially important for the kids in terms of what you get exposed to. And so that's a challenge that American agriculture especially is faced with in terms of ensuring that there's balance in the conversations The industry has been slow to react as well to putting facts out there. The industry has a good story to tell. I feel like they've not engaged as early as they should. And there's some great, great stories out there in terms of what people are doing and how we have gotten more efficient, more sustainable. And you look at what U.S. beef has done as just one example relative to the productivity. They're producing the majority of the beef that is consumed on just a fraction of the total animals. And so, so there's some really good stories, but the industry as a whole is very slow to tell the story, very I don't know if it's modest or, you know, it's just focused on day-to-day operations. And so I think that's a big opportunity is to to get more engaged and putting stories out there and sharing the experiences because people typically don't get exposed to it. It takes some effort to understand more about American agriculture, much more effort than than what I see here. I, I feel also like in the U.S., the arguments become very binary and then heated. So it's like, well, no, in order to reduce that 14.5% I mentioned in the, in the intro, you just have to become vegan or, or vegetarian, stop eating meat. And I don't think that is the answer. I think that we shouldn't tell anybody to do anything, but I think there's got to be a balance and it's not all behavioral necessarily. I feel like here in the U.S., these arguments become very binary versus is integrated. And I feel like in Europe, this seems to be a more civil, sensible approach when it comes to sustainability and how you integrate that into your everyday. Yeah, that's right. And we have to be careful from the extremism. You're absolutely right. So just by eliminating all of the animals and going vegan is not going to solve the problem. In fact, I would argue it can make it worse because I think animals are going to be an important tool in climate change. Is part of the solution because you have to keep in mind what do you need to sequester that carbon? You need lots of plants. And where are the plants? And the plants need to grow in the soil. And animal manure and proper management of pastures and rangelands is so critical to sequestering that carbon. And so I think we've got to not be so skewed in the views around just assuming, okay, if we get rid of all the animals, that solves the problem. That is not the case. And by the way, what's the environmental footprint of a heavily processed product as well? So, you know, we need to, again, let's compare apples to apples. So it is important to to have a very broad perspective of what's going on and not lose sight of without animals, 
we're lacking the manure or that soil quality and that regenerative approach that's going to be so critical, not only for sequestering the carbon, but also biodiversity, which is something that's not in a lot of the sustainability conversations today. But I think we will see more and more of it because biodiversity is going to be super critical for our climate change efforts. Can you talk a little bit about the recent Valencius research trial and specifically what does it mean, not just for the future of DSM, but also sustainable animal nutrition more broadly? So Valencius is a product that we launched recently, a product that goes fed to chickens to improve the overall health and feed efficiency of the chicken. And so what does Balancius do? And, and why are we talking about that from a sustainability perspective? Well, you think about the tools that a poultry producer has or a poultry or chicken producer has, you know, one of the things that's most important to them is that they are raising healthy animals. And so by incorporating a product like Balancius, it impacts the animal's digestion and the microbiome that we're hearing a lot about in both the, the animal world as well as the human world and this intersection between nutrition and health. Some people believe and some of the scientists and, and, and evolving science believes that your entire health is determined by the state of your microbiome and what it's doing. And so we're working on a series of products and Balancius is one of those that can influence the gut microbiome, enabling the animal to be healthier. And why does that matter? Well, if you have a healthier animal, you don't have a need for antibiotics. And so if you can prevent any situations where you would have to provide antibiotics to the animal, that has a sustainable impact. Because one of our six platforms that I mentioned earlier is that we're looking for antibiotic alternatives because there is an issue with antibiotic resistance. And so the more products that we can provide that prevent a producer from ever needing an antibiotic, the better for the chicken, the better for the producer, the better for the planet. Right, because everything that we eat obviously starts with that animal and it gets passed along or passed through. So besides antibiotics is an issue when it comes to the producer, right? Because that's not an issue that DSM is directly involved with. In fact, you're trying to eliminate or reduce that. What are the other issues that you're trying to solve for at the producer level that then ultimately gets passed on to the consumer in terms of ingesting the meat? One of the exciting areas, well, it depends exciting on, on how you think of it, is around enzyme usage in feed. And so protein, protein is a critical part of any animal's diet regardless of species. And if we talk about chickens in particular, so they're, a certain part of their diet is, is protein. But we need to ensure that they can digest all of the protein. And so by putting an enzyme like a protease into the diet, that protease then helps with the digestibility of the protein in the animal. So what does that really mean for you and me? Well, from an environmental standpoint, if they can ingest that protein and get more out of it, that means less is coming out the back end. So when you get less coming out the back end, that means you've got less nitrogen sitting around, which could come off as nitrous oxide and some other, you know, nitrogen in the environment. So that is is one of the areas, again, it's, it's not that sexy when you're talking about managing the manure quality coming out the back end, but really important from a sustainability standpoint. And then if we can get more protein available to that bird, and that ultimately that's less protein that has to be put in the ration to begin with. Well, a lot of us probably daily don't really think about those things, but it's those small but meaningful adjustments that it all starts with the feed, right? It mm -hmm. all starts with the feed. 
that then there is this like knock-on effect or knock-on impact, whether it is for our own health and safety, for those of us who consume meat, and or for the greater good of the environment, which also impacts our health and safety, right? But in a different way. I had never really even thought about it like that at all, which is probably why you went into this, right? I mean, your background is a scientist. And in fact, I think that you have a lot of background in enzymes as well, if I'm reading your bio correctly. Well, I also had a lot of experience growing up shoveling manure on the farm. Oh, <laughs> I can't even imagine. I cannot imagine. So you still have that farm. Is that your parents' farm? Is it your family farm? Or is it your farm that's back in Missouri? Yeah. So the farm I grew up on was in Indiana. And my mother still lives there today. Uh, but my husband and I do have a farm in northern Missouri as well. So it's nice because it keeps us grounded. And then I get to have one foot as a customer um, and then one foot from a corporate side. So I think it, it brings a unique perspective. As long as Jason Bateman isn't there trying to buy your farm, I think it's fine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It, it was interesting different times when I was at Monsanto and having responsibility for, for marketing certain brands and my husband and, and his decision. So uh, at some point we have to separate church and state uh, relative to decisions on the farm. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you grow up in Indiana? It's a small community known as the Coverbridge capital of the world, Park County, Indiana. So it's uh, just basically due west of Indianapolis, almost to Illinois. The interesting thing about Park County is that it has the, the most covered bridges in a county there. Beautiful place to live. That sounds nice. Yeah, my dad grew up in Marion, actually. Oh, okay. Very different though. Not on a farm, but uh, his father, my grandfather, was a groundskeeper. I don't know if you can call them insane asylums anymore. That's what it was called back then. Now it's called like a mental health facility. Can you imagine? And, and part of that is you get housing. Um, so the family, if you work there, your family gets housing. So my dad grew up on that property, which has had all sorts of stories that for another podcast, another day, maybe. Yes. Well, interestingly enough, there's one of those facilities, those asylums, just across the road from my parents' place. And an investor just bought it and they're going to convert it into bed and breakfast and I don't know, maybe some escape room and type activities. Yeah. I, so yeah, yeah, quite, quite interesting. You probably don't even have to build the escape room, but again, anyway, I... I it's probably yes. it's probably there. So, wow. Okay. So, last question because I think this is important. When we talk about everything that's going on, kind of behind the curtain or behind the scenes, but understanding the impact it has in our food supply. Outside of that, and all the great things that you know DSM is doing from an animal nutrition standpoint, which ultimately impacts our nutrition and our health and welfare and well-being as humans. What is it as everyday consumers, those of us who didn't have the advantage of growing up on a farm and, and understanding what that's like, or um, being in the position that you're in, uh, where you have a much larger, larger kind of aperture, also now living abroad and understanding the importance of agriculture and science and intersectionality. So someone that like me live outside the city, work in New York, I subscribe to a, a CSA, which when we have been members of a CSA for eight or nine years now, which has been phenomenal. But what is it that we can do as consumers to make an impact, whether it's through our buying behaviors, decisions, or just our overall daily behavior when it comes to issues like these? Act now. I, I think this is uh, one of the most important things that we need to get across to all the, the citizens, regardless of country, citizens of the of the planet, is that I think the time is, is well past to start acting. You know, so I think the, the first, you know, basic tenets of responsibility around reducing inputs, reduce, reuse, you know, recycle, obviously, of course, um, but you do make significant vote 
every day. And, and that's what I think people need to remind themselves of. You know, you have significant voting power with the wallet, how you spend your resources and the things that you're looking for and what's important. And so making sure to certainly vote with the wallet, but also getting informed. And this is, I think, particularly relevant for today's situation where so many people only rely on social media posts, their comments on whatever social media platform, we've got to do more homework and get a little bit more educated on some of these topics. And that's just a huge need because there's so much misinformation. And we live in a world of sensationalized marketing. And if we're trying to make science-based decisions, you have to look beyond the sensationalized marketing and get a little bit deeper because you know if you just focus on alternative proteins, for example, there's a story spun around that you know remove every cow on the planet and climate change will be solved. I can assure you that's not as simple as that, nor is that the right thing to do from a biodiversity, soil, regenerative ag perspective. And so it's really important to ensure that we're getting educated on all these because it's important to stay rooted in science and have a broad, big picture view because the supply chain is quite long. There's lots of improvements being made throughout. And so I think if I could impart one message here to the listeners, and that is, you know, sensationalized marketing is great. We have a responsibility to educate ourselves in these very important, pivotal arguments. I appreciate you saying that. And that's why I'd mentioned earlier how I'm trying very hard to deconstruct and challenge the binary mindset that so many both organizations and consumers have. And I think it also starts with understanding where the source is, right? So where do you get your news? Who are you listening to? Making sure that there's multiple voices in the conversation, not just in your head. It'll help you make a more informed choice, which is why, again, I'm a huge fan of podcasts and as well as reliable sources like, for me, it's NPR, BBC, The New Yorker, where, where they have multiple voices. And I appreciate that. The other thing I really like about DSM in, in particular, and I've had a long history with the organization as a client over the years, and currently, of course, is there's a level of transparency and accountability, which you often see coming from European companies, quite frankly. I think that they are more of the pioneer in disclosure, especially when it comes to sustainability. And I appreciate that. So you can go on and there are both admit points and there's a lot of research that's available to, to everyday consumers. You just have to look and you have to look past some of like these, like what I call again, these like kind of polarizing binary voices that are out in the market. Yeah, absolutely. You know, any company that's, you know, typically publicly traded, that's brand and reputation, share price, everything that it's built on credibility. Without credibility, they're nothing. And, and how do you maintain that credibility and earn the right to keep operating and keep in business? And, and you've got to have integrity in your processes, integrity in your research. And, and it's so critical. And, and that's why I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of DSM for those reasons and having an organization that's aligned. Like I said, when there's you have clarity around your values, then the decisions become super easy. And so uh, working working with DSM to produce more sustainable products for people on the human side, for, for animals on the animal side, and for the planet overall uh, is very aligned with, with my values. Well, Christy, it was great having you on. I appreciate your honesty. You have a great story as well. And I'll try now, I, hopefully you haven't ruined me forever when I'm making chicken, like if I'm going to make chicken parm tonight, I'm thinking, hmm, did this chicken, did it have the right enzymes? Did 
<laughs> how much antibiotic? Actually, I try to buy chicken that there's a lot of disclosure about what's been fed to the chicken, which I also think is actually another thing consumers can look for is just knowing where you're buying your product from and how that animal's fed, how it was raised. I mean, that's as long as that story is full of truths and not mistruths, I think that's also important. Yeah, you know, we're really lucky as Americans that we have so much choice in the supermarket and really cheap, high quality food system supplying our grocery stores today. That is a, a privilege, certainly in America and many other Western companies as well. It's just the, the abundance of the high quality protein products that exist on the shelves today. Yeah, we take that for granted for sure. Thank you again, Christy. I'm going to end it here. I know we can keep talking and talking and talking, but thank you again for everything that you do and uh, best of luck in your new role. It sounds delightful where you're living. It sounds a lot better than where I am currently. So enjoy. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you today. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquitkin.com. 